My name's Mimi Bouchard, founder of Superhuman, the transformational app that helps you become your future self so that you can finally start attracting more joy, abundance, health, wealth, and love into your life. And that's also my mission on this podcast. Meet people whose lives have been transformed in big and small ways, but always for the better. They tell me how they did it so that you can too. Today on the podcast, we are talking about anxiety, what causes it, what helps, and what's making it worse with Instagram's anxiety doc, Jen Anders. Dr. Jen, I am so excited to have you on the show. You are known as the anxiety doc on Instagram, and I've been following you for a while now. Your account is so helpful, and every time you post, I just always make sure to read everything because it's always of so much value. So I can't wait to have you on the show today. Thank you so much again for coming on and spending your time with me. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for this conversation. So many people in today's world, especially deal with anxiety and it's such an important topic. Um, But first of all, I would love for you to tell us what is anxiety and how does it differ from depression, panic, or worry? Yeah. So first I'll say what I think anxiety is, and then I'll talk about it in like clinical terms, because I do really think there's an important distinction to make in how we conceptualize anxiety. And this really helps reframe how people go about addressing it. So and I can't take credit for this. I, I actually am probably, I don't know who originally said this, but I think it's a really beautiful way to conceptualize anxiety. And what I've heard is anxiety is an over-reliance on the power that is outside of you and placing your placing your trust in the challenging situation rather than placing the trust in yourself, rather than placing the power and the wherewithal within yourself. When we give our power away to the trigger, the challenging event, the the anxiety-provoking situation, we inherently diminish our own power and and essentially give ourselves away to the challenge. And we we essentially say, this is, I can't handle this. This is something that's going to derail me. And so like, it's in my, in the way I define it, it's simply like an over-reliance on the ex- just placing your trust in the, in the external world rather than in yourself. And so that's the way I approach anxiety. That's not the clinical definition of anxiety, but that's the way I like to think about it. The clinical definition, and this is probably what most people are familiar with, it's, you know, obsessive, obsessive thoughts about fear, phobias, um, worries, constantly perseverating on all of the things that can go wrong and that will go wrong. Um, and then it's accompanied, of course, by a whole whole slew of physical, very uncomfortable physical reactions from, you know, clammy palms, upset stomach, headache, you know, a number of different phys- physiological reactions that can come from the experience. And so I guess that there is room to bring these two concepts of anxiety together, but I really like, really like to think of it in those two terms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That makes so much sense whenever I'm personally feeling anxious and thinking about things that are outside of my control and I'm, it's not rooted in a place of self-trust that I can handle it essentially. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense and definitely resonates. So how do you diagnose it? Is it really just from those symptoms that you were explaining there? How do you diagnose anxiety? Yeah. So 
clinical diagnosis of anxiety is having a list of these symptoms present for six months or longer, some of which I just explained. I think it's really important to distinguish between a clinical diagnosis of anxiety and just the way you and I and most people talk about anxiety, right? You, I'm sure in conversation with many people you've had over the years, anxiety comes up. Everyone seems to be anxious. And this is true. Like we are a worried society. Like that's just kind of like how we are these days. That's how a lot of people are wired. But really what makes a clinical diagnosis of anxiety a diagnosis is when the worry is present in the absence of the stressor. And so I think it's so important to distinguish that like worry is healthy, that it's, it's even normal to have physiological and heightened anxiety to a stressor like that. That's common. That's how that's the flight or flight response system. It's becomes a, cl- a clinical diagnosis. It becomes an issue when your anxiety is present in the absence of the stressor, when the stressor is resolved and we're still experiencing that physiological response mm-hmm. to the stressor, essentially. So, and, yeah. you know, that's kind of what I talk, talk through with my clients, and with patients and how I, well, how I help people understand the difference between just general worry and like clinical anxiety. Right. So is there any one thing that all anxious people have in common? Oh, that's a good question. The The one thing I would say is that that worry in the absence of the stressor, like that's kind of what I like to drill home when I talk about anxiety is that mm-hmm. once the issue has been resolved, if that, if that sense of impeding doom and fear is still present, even when like the situation has, you've gotten a hold of the situation like that, that's the, the key indicator of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Truly. Mm-hmm. Right. So you take a holistic approach to treating anxiety. What does that mean? Tell me about what it means to take a holistic approach. Yeah. So what I do is I want to kind of normalize this conversation around around anxiety and mental health in general. I try to use, and this is kind of not exactly answering your question, but taking it a few steps back, I try to use really simplistic language and really tangible tools and techniques to help people just realize how their bodies are reacting to their environments. You know, in a in a very like clinical setting, anxiety is treated with cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy and medication. That's like the gold standard of treatment. And mm-hmm. like by all means, those I'm a huge proponent of both of those. Like if you need medication, I'm all here for it. Similarly, like I think cognitive behavioral therapy is a great starting point for helping people understand how their thoughts and their feelings are connected to their behaviors. But when I take a holistic approach, it's really like taking that one step further and helping people understand how their habits and their routines and the food that they put in their body and the sunlight that you expose your face to, all of these things, you know, your connection to nature, all of these things have an impact on your mood and how you physically experience anxiety in the body. Um, You know, a lot of people and a lot of psychologists don't really talk about nutrient depletion and how that can mimic anxiety and how that can feel like anxiety. And similarly, 
how if you're not exposing your face to the sunlight enough, or if you're not, I mean, vitamin D, of course, if, if you're not getting enough vitamin D, how that can feel like anxiety in the body. And so really approaching mental health and anxiety specifically from this really holistic perspective that is, of course, taking into consideration cognitive behavioral therapy and medication, but all of these other domains that impact our mental health as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, again, from personal experience can resonate so much with everything you're saying. You know, when I'm not going outside enough or when I'm on oh my, my screen too much, I have raging anxiety and I don't need to, you know, take a pill to make it go away. I just have to change what I'm doing. But, you know, that being said, that's just for me. Um, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people too, because we're living in a time where there's just so much out there that just can really trigger it, right? Like phones are such a big one for me, at least, you know, the numbing of constantly being on technology and we're doing something completely different to what we were, you know, I guess in evolution supposed to be doing, right? Um, yeah. Being outside more, having our feet in the ground, like cooking all of our meals, being with community more. Now it's just so different. And of course, we're seeing results from that. Oh yeah, you that you've said that so well. It's and it's so interesting. I'll share a little story with you. So the past couple of days, I'm here at my family's house in Telluride, Colorado, and we're our house is like up on the mountains. And one side of the mountain doesn't receive sunlight until like nine nine thirty in the morning, but the other side of yeah. the of like the valley does. And so I had been kind of like cooped up here in the morning, just drinking my coffee, like hold up in this, in kind of like the dark side of our house for the past couple of days. And something like inside of me just felt like slightly off. Like energetically, I was just, something feels, I'm not waking up on the right side of the bed or like with my best foot. And so yesterday I just started to, I took my coffee outside to the other side of like our home area and just started drinking my coffee with the sunlight directly in my face. And I like, this is something that I talk about a lot. And this is something that I really preach, but I don't obviously put into practice all the time. And when I do, like these past couple of days, just starting my day immediately with sunlight in my face has made a massive difference in my energy level throughout the day and just how I'm able to confront challenge. And like, this is, of course, just one little example. I'm not saying that like sunlight's going to cure your anxiety by any means, but there are these little routines and habits that people aren't necessarily aware of that actually do have a huge impact on your mood and your mental health throughout the day. And so even now, like I'm feeling 10 times better than I did a couple of days ago at this time of the day because I had 30 minutes of sunlight first thing in the morning. Like I'm noticing like my colors even like I'm my this my skin tone looks like healthier. I feel better. And this this just goes to show that like these little things, these little holistic, I guess you could call them tools or like what's the word I'm looking for? Like just rituals, like, like daily rituals. practices. Yes. Yeah. M- like make a wild difference in mm-hmm. how how you go, you know, how you navigate your day. I once heard this study and I'm probably going to butcher it because I don't have it here in front of me, but there, there are these women who are trying to lose weight, right? It's a weight loss study. And they told the women that they, these women were housekeepers. And so they told them that throughout the course of their day, they were actually getting, they were burning X many calories by vacuuming, by fluffing the pillows, by like putting soap into the showers. And just with this awareness that what they were doing was considered like exercise, these women in this study ended up losing, I think it was like 
again, I'm probably going to butcher it because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like a significantly more amount of weight than the women who were not told that what they were doing is exercise. And so to tie this back to like the rituals and the routines, like just having awareness in the fact that what you're doing supports your mental health can dramatically change the way you experience your mental health and your mood. Oh, I actually read this study. I know it was like um, house or it was like cleaners at a big hotel or something. And yes. yeah, I remember this study. I read it in a book somewhere. It was so interesting. So it's all about- We must have read the same book. Yeah, it's almost like the placebo effect, right? It's, but not, right? It it's just shows the, the power of the mind and it just shows that when you notice things, your body responds. So cool and so accurate. But I'd like to go back because so much of what you post about suggests that anxiety takes root in our childhood. And mm -hmm. I find this fascinating. I want to learn more why. Why is this all stemmed in our childhood? And um, I'd love to hear you speak on that. Yeah. So the, as the saying goes, genetics load the trigger and environment pulls the gun. I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah. And like this, I, I totally subscribe to that. I think there's a number of different things, you know, a number of different things are at play here. First and foremost, I think modeling is a huge part of this, meaning that when we see our parents acting and responding in a certain way, or even the absence of response, right? In, in one way or another, we internalize that and we believe that's how humans respond to stress. That's how humans respond to X, Y, and Z situation. And so like, that's one of the, that's one of the theoretical underpinnings. That's one of the things that I try to teach people in my, you know, with my Instagram account. The other part is just like, when you have a parent who is dysregulated themselves, when, when they are not at a place where they can control their emotional response to something, that can create a lot of fear and uncertainty in a child. And it can really create this environment where, you know, you, as a child, you don't know like what's going to come next. You don't, you're, you feel like you're walking on eggshells around your parent. You feel like you're there to please them, that, that their, your happiness is dependent on their mood. And I'm just like, I'm speaking from my own personal experience as well. Like you, truly like internalize your parents' happiness and make, and you feel that you're responsible for bringing them out of their moods or whatnot. And so this is a pattern that's learned in childhood and kind of like subconsciously internalized and just repeated throughout life and throughout our adulthood. And we grow up and we kind of just in our relationships assume this is, this is how, the, this is how we're supposed to act in front of people. This is how we're supposed to in, build relationships and build trust and bonds. And it kind of all starts in those those early years from zero to seven. And if I'm being generous, like zero to 14, like that's where those underpinnings of how you interact with people are formed. And so, of course, like I'm not, I, this is not to blame anyone's parents, my parents included for, for our anxiety, but a lot of these behaviors are kind of learned and picked up at, at that age, I believe. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the walking on eggshells thing because that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. In a recent post, you yeah. asked your followers if they grew up walking on eggshells in yeah. quotations as children. What does that tell you about them? I feel like I walked on eggshells as a kid. What yeah. does that tell you about me? <laughs> so, I mean, my, 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 myself included, right? Yeah. Really, 
I think it tells me one thing that, and again, like I want to preface this, like we're, this is, this is not to like cast blame on anyone. I think when we have this conversation, it can be very easy to be like, well, we're blaming our parents for like the way we are, like how messed up we are. And that's, that's not the, the tone of this at all, but just rather to like have awareness. But I think number one, you know, our parents themselves were not emotionally regulated and, you know, like they were operating from an energy of fear. Most likely they were operating from, I'll stick with fear. Cause that, like, that's where the majority of anxiety comes from is fear, but they were operating from this kind of like energetic field. And we, as children, like are perceptive, we pick up on those things and we feel that like we carry that responsibility. We feel that like it's on us to try to change our parents to try to like make the situation feel better because we don't really, you know, like you just want things to be good when you're little. You just want, you just want to feel good and you just want the people around you to be happy. And when they're not, it can feel very confusing and disorienting. And Mm -hmm. so the walking on eggshells is really to, I mean, we could probably spend a long time talking about people pleasing, but like, that's really what it comes down to is not wanting to disturb, not wanting to make the situation worse, not wanting to contribute to the quote unquote problem ever so gingerly, like walk around the situation to try to like minimize your impact on (laughs) exacerbating their fear. Mm -hmm. So what does growing up in that kind of environment do to someone later in life? What I've seen is that it creates this pattern of people pleasing for one. We internalize that our, that we are responsible for the emotions of other people. And (laughs) <laughs> the, the the truth is, is like, we're not like everyone is responsible for their own emotional well-being, their own emotional response. And I think this pattern, if you like grow up in an environment where you are walking on eggshells and when you're super conscious of, you know, not making a mistake, you kind of you turn into a, an adult who's like hyper conscious and hyper vigilant of everything that's happening around you. And like, to an extent that can be helpful, right? Like people pleasing is not all bad. Like it's good to have people respond favorably to you. Like, I'm, I'm the, I don't want to like paint this picture that it's a completely horrible thing, but when the scale tips and you start to like put other people's needs in front of your own, and when you start to really like internalize, feel responsible and internalize other people's thoughts and feelings and behaviors, like that's when it becomes an issue because it starts, you know, it weighs on you and can lead to burnout. It can lead to a host of other mental, I mean, mental illness is probably a strong word, but I would say just like emotional challenges in adulthood. And it's, and it's not until you really kind of like look at these patterns and really realize that what's happening, do you, can you start to deconstruct it? I think. Mm -hmm. So what's, something that parents can stop doing mm-hmm. to help their kids not be so anxious. Obviously, not be as fearful is a big one, but are there other things that parents can do to help their kids not be so anxious so it kind of sets them up better in their later life? Yeah, I think as a parent, first and foremost, just val- assuming that you're, you're a parent that's emotionally stable, just validating, validating your child's experience I think a lot of times parents can be just like brush their child's experience under the rug because they don't personally feel that or they don't personally think it's a big deal. And well, the reality is, is it's not, but it is a big deal to the child. And so there's a fine line between like brushing it aside and invalidating your child and like giving them the space to feel what they're feeling. But I think step one is giving them permission to feel what they're feeling. 
and to like validate that all feelings are good feelings. All feelings are safe. All feelings are good. Even if it's a bad feeling, it's okay to have that, hold that feeling and to reassure to them that whatever they're experiencing in the moment right now is going to pass, that emotions are fluid and they're, they're constantly moving and changing. And that when we attach to them, when we grab hold of them, when we associate with them and like believe that that emotion is us, it makes it stronger. But when we just see it as what it is, like energy in motion is emotion. When we see it as that, it makes it much, much easier to kind of detach from it and just be a, be an observer of it, be a gentle observer of that emotion rather than fusing with it. Mm-hmm. All of these, mm-hmm. all of these topics are very like esoteric and kind of no. like within the spiritual realm, but they make so much, it really like connects with cognitive behavioral therapy and like these like psychological underpinnings that psychologists and therapists talk about all the time. Um, you're in the right place to talk about that kind of stuff. So <laughs> I thought know, so. I'm, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, you're, you're, we're, we're all completely aligned over here. So uh, yeah, it makes, makes so much sense. Uh, so what, what are some of the warning signs that tells you someone's anxiety is tipping into a dangerous zone? What's kind mm-hmm. of normal, quote, normal anxiety versus something that's turning into something quite dangerous? I think when it starts to impact your relationships is a big one. When you're, when you're, when the people around you start to take note that like your response feels abnormal to the situation at hand, like that's a good indicator. I think it's also so helpful to get to know your physiological responses. And by that, I mean like how your own body responds to anxiety because Everyone's body feels different when they experience anxiety. For example, I might feel like really like a tension in my chest, really like a tightening in my chest and my throat, whereas somebody else might experience it in their stomach. And so becoming familiar with the bodily sensations is step one of all of this. In in the world of psychology and therapy, we call it somatization. And that's basically when your physical symptoms, like when your physiological response to right? The stressor or to your environment starts to get in the way that it's impacting your life, right? So if you're about to get on a call and you're really nervous about it and you're, and you have to cancel the call because you're overwhelmed with anxiety, or you have to adjust your daily routine because you don't like to drive, you know, when these areas of anxiety start to seep into your quote unquote daily functioning and impact the way you access your environment, the impact the way you go about interacting, you know, socializing, taking care of yourself, when it starts to impact those things, like that's the first red flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So I'd love to discuss some of the more subtle characteristics that are Mm -hmm. usually signs of anxiety. I know on your page, you've mentioned procrastination, Mm -hmm. sensitivity to noise and smells. What are some other subtle signs that someone listening might be experiencing anxiety. Mm, Okay, so good that you mentioned that. I think, I don't think a lot of people associate procrastination with anxiety, but really like the two and two, both of these things go hand in hand. Procrastination is really just about the avoidance of negative emotion and anxiety at its core is about avoidance of negative emotion. Like that's what creates the loop. The cycle of anxiety is we think something will, will, we fear something, we fear the outcome, we push it away, we ignore it, 
And then what happens in that process of ignoring it is it comes back even stronger. And so procrastination is, is exactly that. It's like a manifestation of that in your work or mostly, mostly in work. Sensitivity is also, yeah, thank you for, for mentioning that as well, because not always, but some people, when they experience or when their anxiety starts to kick in, they'll experience sensitivity to noise in particular. You'll, you'll just start to, to notice that everything in your, in your environment starts to get on your, like starts to peeve you, right? You'll hear the construction down the street and like, it's been happening all week and it's been fine. But for whatever reason, when your anxiety ramps up, like it just hits that very last nerve. Or Or, when someone sneezes. (laughs) Yeah. Like my fiance, I don't know, like with age, his sneezes are getting so much louder like oh honestly, it, when I'm anxious and he sneezes, it's like yeah. get away. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, loud noises definitely. Yeah. It's funny you say that because last night actually, we, my husband and I we were like dozing off. We were falling asleep, and he sneezes really loud right in my face, and it wakes both of us up. Like I think he was asleep too, but I'm like jolted awake by his sneeze, and I'm like kind of mad because I'm, you know, in that like blissful falling asleep phase, and Ugh. this like really loud sound just so sensitivity can like yeah. to tie it back to that sensitivity to all of your sensations, right? To noise, to light, to. I don't, I can't really speak to taste. I don't really know if that is, but really just like to your environment, to the light as well. Like if someone turns on the lights and you're not used to it, Mm -hmm. like if you have anxiety or if you're a highly sensitive person, which is like a whole nother conversation in and of itself, like those are kind of like those subtle indicators that (laughs) it's starting to set in. Right. Am I right to say that when you're anxious, you're in fight or flight mode? Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So if that's the case, do some people fight, freeze, flee, you know, is it, is that also correct in anxiety? Um, yeah. What are some typical responses to, to anxiety? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You've already put so much of this together. Like you must be, you're a pro, honestly. So that's exactly right. Follow the anxiety doc on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically like we have the nerve, I'm not going to like get into all like the scientific jargon, but we have in our, within our nervous system, we have state of like rest and digest, which is like the calm state. And then you have fight or flight, which is the aroused state. And so within fight or flight, most people have heard of those two things that, you know, when you're presented with a trigger or a stressor, your natural response is to either fight it, you know, your heart rate increases, your the blood rushes from your extremities to your core to try to prepare to fight the fight the situation or flee the situation. And so you'll probably start, if you're listening to this, you'll probably start to connect more with either fight or flight. Like, oh, for example, I'm someone who tends to just ghost. Like when something, when something triggers me or when I'm feeling anxious, like I'm not a fighter. What I do is I just totally withdraw and remove myself from the situation. So that would be that would be like the freeze response. The fight response would be your classic someone who gets angry, right? A lot of the times, and like, this is probably more common in men than not, but like, I'm not, I don't want to like generalize, but another very common response to anxiety is anger. And that's classically the fight response. The other response that's not talked about as much is the fawn response. And that's basically like, snuggling up to the, um, I like, I'm trying to explain this in like layman's terms, but it's when you kind of connect with the stressor. Like when you start to 
see yourself as like being a part of or very like enmeshed with the thing that's causing you stress. And this is classically seen in unhealthy relationships where one person is maybe, you know, emotionally volatile and the other person is experiencing the fawn response where they, you know, cozy up to this type of behavior and start to believe it's normal and start to believe that if only they just got more emotionally intimate or closer, they the problem would be resolved. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we think of it like a deer, you know, just like needing its little mom and just cozying up to. I'm, I keep on using that word cozying up. I don't know why I don't describe it as that normally, but I'm trying to explain the fun response to people to like help them understand what that means. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so whether, you know, we're fight, freeze, um, flight, or fawn, you know, we probably use things in our lives to curb anxiety, whether that's alcohol, TV, social media, food, whatever it is. In your opinion, what is the worst possible thing that we could throw at our anxiety? Uh, I think it's going to depend on the person. But for, uh, gosh, I think anything that's going to numb you from the feeling that you're feeling, whether that is alcohol, whether that's scrolling Instagram or getting lost in TikTok for hours or just turning on the TV to escape. It's anything that's going to take you away from feeling that feeling. That is probably the worst thing you could do for your anxiety because what's happening is the anxiety towards that situation is not going away when you escape or when you do any one of these numbing, like engage in any any one of these numbing mechanisms. It's just building up the anxiety and actually making the situation more intense in your mind, more intense in your body. And so that the next time this triggering situation comes around, let's say, for example, like you all use this present, like this podcast as an example, like say you're really uncomfortable with public speaking and like just speaking face to face with people. The more you ignore it, the more you distract yourself from that feeling and push it away and numb it, the stronger that is it's going to become. And so what I would recommend people do instead of numbing, and like I I always want to like leave the leave people with something like tangible to work with. Like rather than numbing yourself and pushing away that anxiety, it's really important to connect with it and to like allow yourself to feel that feeling. And just let yourself, like, let that feeling wash through your body and experience it. A lot of people often respond with, like, well, why would I, how is that productive? Why would I want to just sit in that uncomfortable feeling? How is that going to help me? And the irony of anxiety is that when you allow yourself to feel the anxiety, when you allow, like, your breath to get short and that, like, physiological response to really, like, set in rather than resist it, it passes through much faster. And if you numb yourself to the anxiety with, you know, take any one of these <laughs> distractors that are like very common that people use to just, you know, numb and distract themselves from their anxiety these days, you, you just, you, you make it worse. And so that's like what I would encourage people to do is to just like, oh, if you take one thing from this podcast today, it's to allow yourself to feel that feeling rather than resisting it because resisting it actually makes it like 10 times stronger. That makes so much sense. I've never heard it said like that. And I want to dive into this a little bit more. How, how, what does that look like? So we could even use me as an example. I have a bad tendency of, you know, mindlessly scrolling on my phone 
when I'm feeling overwhelmed and anxious. And as a business owner, I'm there are always things being thrown at me all a day. And that's something I've had to go, you know, I've, it's been like a vice. I often delete yeah. social media apps because it's like the only way that I won't do that. And what does it look like if I was feeling uncomfortable or anxious, but I didn't, it's kind of just this underlying feeling. There wasn't like one reason mm-hmm. for it. It's just become a, become a memorized feeling mm-hmm. with stress and overwhelm with work. How would that look like for me as an example to sit in it, to feel it, to let it pass? Would I need to go into a room alone and take a few deep breaths and focus on that specific thing? Can I do it while I'm in line somewhere? Like how, what does that actually look like in life? Such a good question. Well, first, let me just say, like, I can 100% relate to just pulling out your phone as a distraction because it feels good. It like takes your brain away. I noticed that in the height of my anxiety, like I tend to do that as well. So like, let's just normalize that. Like we, it's, we all find ourselves in that position very often, but really, really important. I believe that you, in order to feel this feeling, like you have to kind of start to make it a practice first of all. And so I recommend that you start to get familiar with these sensations when you're not anxious, when you're when you're not at the height of your anxiety. So like if you think of anxiety like a spectrum, like it ebbs and flows. It's very hard to remember to use these tools and to ground yourself when you're at the height of it. And so like it's important to really practice these strategies when you're in a kind of calmer state of being. And you know, I think that I tend to believe that those times of day are right when you wake up in the morning and before you go to bed. And so what that looks like on a tangible, in a realistic recommendation would be to just connect with that, whatever feeling you're feeling in the moment. And like, this is of course best done by yourself, like in a room or outside in nature is my preference. Just anywhere where you can like get away from from other people just so that you can like kind of your aura can be clear and your bubble can be just like just you. I love writing and so like for me it's re- really therapeutic to just write down whatever feeling comes to mind and like just describe it in detail. Describe that feeling. You might not have time in the morning or time in the evening to just like pull out your journal and like start writing about how your stomach feels and how your head feels. But to just as often as possible kind of connect with how you feel rather than what you think. Because mm-hmm. the feelings, the, it starts, I mean, it does start with the thought, but if you're able to connect with the feeling, it's it, it's going to make much more sense. And so once you tie this back to your question, once you start to make it a practice of tuning into how your body feels, you're going to be able to do it kind of like on the fly. You'll be able to do it in the grocery store line. You'll be able to do it when you get an email that's really stressful and your boss needs something from you right away or your producer is like, this has gone wrong. We need you to put out this fire. Like you'll, you'll be able, you'll be equipped to know how to practice calming your body in a moment because you've practiced it in a state when your nervous system isn't dysregulated. I hope that made sense. That makes so much sense. And I love that tip of just writing down how your body is feeling. So not even having any distractions around is getting a pen and paper and putting phones and distractions in another room, going outside yeah. ideally in nature and just writing down, you know, like my hand or my palms are sweaty, my heart is racing, you know, just like exploring those physical sensations and letting it pass and just breathing through it. Um, something else I'll add here is I've recently discovered cyclical sighing 
Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. I heard of um, it. Tell me more. I'm like, okay. I'm sure I, I'm sure I have, but I haven't heard it yeah. phrased like that. Cyclical sighing. So um, I heard it on the Huberman Lab. I don't know how to pronounce Huberman, I think, Lab podcast. Yeah. It was like the only episode I've ever listened to of his. I should probably listen to more because it was so good. And he was talking about um, this type of breath that really helps anxiety. And it's like you breathe in through your nose and you breathe in like so, you know, as much as possible. And then you take an extra sip at the top. So you go... <clears throat> And so you have a, like a totally full, you know, totally full lungs. And then you sigh it out like an audible sigh. So you go, <sighs> and it's like just that feeling immediately, even one just like changes your physiology. So he says to do that, you know, every every couple breaths for like a couple minutes and it really helps. And that has been something that has really, you know, I don't use it all the time, but when I remember to, it, it definitely helps. I love that so much. I didn't know that's what that was called, that like extra sip of breath at the the top. That's so, so powerful. The one thing that I will also add to that is, I mean, we could probably spend a whole another hour just talking about breathing in and of itself Mm -hmm. because breath work is incredibly profound. But one thing that I think it's really important for people to focus on when they're engaging in any sort of breath work activity is to elongate the exhale. I think when we're anxious, we tend to think it's about like taking in the biggest inhale that we can. But the reality is like inhale is actually associated with fight or flight and exhale is associated with calming the nervous system. So if you really focus on like, and so good with like the cyclical breathing too, like if you focus on that exhale and like elongate it and bring your attention to it, that is what like calms your nervous system and brings you back into that rest and digest state. Right. That's so, that's so great. I love that elongated exhales. Let's do it forever. (laughs) Um, You talk a lot about highly sensitive people and anxiety. I am definitely one of Mm -hmm. those people. And as you know, no stranger to anxiety. Why are we so prone to anxiety? Yeah. Well, so highly sensitive people, it's like not a formal diagnosis by any means. It's something that I don't know if you're heard of, you guys have heard of Elaine, Dr. Elaine Aaron. She studied this trait. Um, I think it was in the 90s and basically found that <laughs> I think it was like over 60 species. I'm probably butchering that number because I don't have it in front of me, but there are tons of species who are quote unquote have this trait highly sensitive, high, high sensitivity. And basically what it is, is exactly what it sounds like, a heightened sensitivity to your environment, to the emotions of others, to sound, to the way your clothes feel on your body, to the way food feels when you put it in your body. Um, and so myself, of co- being one of these people too, like also being someone who has anxiety, you can just see how obviously being sensitive to everything around you is going to make you more anxious because you're, you're tuned in more. Like you're, you are tapped into call it an energy, call it just emotions of other people, whatever you want. Like you are picking up on these really subtle, like energetic or feelings that other people aren't. And it's overwhelming. It's, Mm. it completely overwhelms you. And so highly sensitive people and anxious people need to really go out of their way to protect themselves from, to set up routines and and rituals. I love how you said that rituals and routines to buffer you from the experience of other people and other, the the outer world, because like, as you know, like we can't control other people. We can't control how 
what they say, what they do or how things happen, but we can't control how we respond to it. And that's like ultimately what gives us the power, what brings us back into a state of like feeling less anxious, feeling more centered and calmed is feeling like we can take back control. And that starts with setting up these routines to buffer you from the outer world, so to speak. Right. So I would love to know some maintenance tips for staying anxiety-free. That's our last question Mm -hmm. before a rapid-fire advice round. But I would love to hear from you, the professional, maintenance tips for staying anxiety-free. You already mentioned writing and working through your anxiety when it happens and teaching yourself how to do that regularly. What other rituals or, or daily things you can do to kind of maintain this constant underlying feeling of anxiety so many of us experience? Yeah, I think a big one is to just be aware of the thinking traps that you're falling into. Maybe you've heard this term before, like the cognitive distortions or thinking traps. For those of you guys listening, you can just Google thinking traps. There's like 10 of them that are really common. And we tend to, when when we're in a state of anxiety, we tend to fall into one of these thinking traps. And so just kind of living throughout your day. Like I, I recommend printing out this, this, like there's probably like tons of PDFs online where you can print out common thinking traps and just putting it like next to your desk or like in your bedroom somewhere, just to remind you that the thoughts that you're having is actually a cognitive distortion and it's not reality just to like bring you back down to the moment. But on top of that, I think it's, you know, I have a love hate relationship with routine. I think they can be really helpful Also, I think they can like put you into a box and confine you and they can like turn you into a very rigid person. But I do think to an extent having routine around, and when I I, want to say that with like loose quotes, routine around your morning, (laughs) because if you wake up and just jumpstart into your day and start work and start responding to people and you kind of like just get swept up in the hype of the day, it's really easy to start off imbalanced. And in order to kind of counteract that, we want to start off like in our own, in our own energy and our feeling grounded and steady. And the best way to do that is I think at least to set aside a half hour to write is a big one. Just get your thoughts out on paper, sit with a warm glass of whatever beverage you drink, or if you're, if it's the tropics, like something cool, just a beverage of choice to just write, sip on whatever you're drinking do a few breathing exercises and just center yourself in your own energy before you like go out into the world. I think that's one of the biggest protective things that we can do. And if you don't have a half hour, 10 minutes, just something before you just wake up and wake up and go, because that kind of sets us off like spiraling into like a cascade of other people's like energy and demands and can be very unhelpful. And we want to do that in the evening too, ideally to like decompress and to kind of like shed off everything that's happened throughout the day. And so I also love an evening ritual or routine. And like, of course, this changes based off of where I am or what I'm doing that evening, but making sure that I'm like spending some time on the floor. This is going to sound really crazy, but like I'm a huge proponent of just like laying on the floor, like just to whatever socially appropriate extent possible, like getting on the floor and just grounding yourself, putting your feet up the wall and just doing some of that cyclical breathing or elongation box breathing is another really big one. Something where you're just focusing on, on your breath. Oh, I could, I could spend hours talking about like my actual recommendations for people, but 
avoiding processed food is a big one. Like I'm, I notice that when I'm, I mean, I try to eat very healthy, but when I don't eat what resonates with my body, I just feel off and like, I'm not able to handle life as, as, as fluidly and efficiently as I know I can. And I mean, who knows? It could be in my head, but I just, I, I feel best when I'm putting healthy food into my body. And so like, I'm sure your audience, they're all, we're all healthy eaters here, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think just being cognizant of how food makes you feel is another big one. Massive. I also love how you say the legs up wall thing. Um, on Superhuman, we actually have legs up wall meditations. They're amazing for de-stressing. I know yes. we just sent you a membership, but you've got to try them. They're they're game changing. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. They're really I try. Fun. I try to do legs up the wall like for a couple minutes every night to decompress. And there's something powerful about the floor. Like you guys, I mean, with your app, yeah. like you guys have figured this out, but so <laughs> everyone okay. listening to this, like get on the floor, <laughs> get on the floor and put your legs up a wall. And it will also help your lymphatic system and it will de-stress you. And it'll just be amazing to uh, decompress after a long day. But Dr. Jen, I have rapid fire advice round questions for you before we wrap up. Let's and do it. Let's try to answer them in a couple sentences or less, okay? Okay. <laughs> Number one, I need to quit coffee, but I just can't. What do you tell me? Ooh, half-calf. Ooh, that's a we'll good start one. There. Yes, I'm recently in this. Yep, just switch it out and slowly start making the ratio like 50-50, 40-60, 70-30. That's brilliant. That is so <laughs> brilliant. Okay, love that. Next one, I'm afraid to fly. One big thing I can do to make it easier. Mm. Describe what you see. So like in your head, as you get onto the plane, be like brown chair, blue lights, connect yourself to the visual sensation or not to the vision, what you see visually and like say it out loud. That's great. I'll tell that to Ben, my fiance, he's scared of flying, but this is not um, me by the way. So I I don't need to quit coffee. I'm not afraid of flying, but I'm just giving you a scenario. (laughs) Yeah, no, Um, these are good. That's, that's super smart. So the next one is um, the must have supplement for anxiety. Hmm. I'm going to say magnesium. I knew That's when I've noticed. I, I'm like such a supplement junkie. I go on and on about all, of, you know, there's so many yeah. things. But if I were to, to pin it on one, I would say magnesium. There's a ton of different kinds. Like some are good for like, you know, some are like laxatives. And I'm not talking about that kind. I'm talking about the kind that's like for your nervous system. So do your research, like look up what kind it is. Perfect. The difference between an anxiety attack and a panic attack and advice, mm. quick advice for both. Okay, so... Anxiety attack is actually not a thing. It's a, pa- a panic attack is when we are completely stuck in fight or flight and we've kind of like lost control of our thoughts and our rational be- our rational mind. They're, they're the same thing essentially, but people often confuse or people use the two interchangeably. Try to connect yourself to what you're like physically and visually experiencing. So take your hands and put them on the table and like feel the table I also like to recommend people like grab an ice cube and just like hold the ice cube in their hands and like feel that cold sensation. You could do it with a lemon too. Although like orthodontists always or dentists always get mad at me whenever I say this because it ruins your enamel, but lemon in your mouth to like just awaken your sensation. So anything that can kind of like jolt your sensation or your awareness back to the present moment, because we get, when we're in a panic attack, we like, our brain has lost We've, it's it's in the future or the past. And so like these these things like the lemons or the, the ice cube really bring you back to the present moment. Right. So last question is, what does anxiety really rob us of the most? Why is it mm-hmm. so important to try to fix? 
Uh, I think it robs us of our ability to be fully ourselves. A lot of the time, anxiety, it's like a cloak over your personality, over who you are, over your confidence. And like, you're there, like your beautiful, like brilliant self is still there. But anxiety is kind of like draped over you, kind of blunting your experience of the world. And when you learn how to really like break free of it, when you learn how to manage it, like you're able to like fully experience the moment. You're able to like fully be present and conscious in the moment and enjoy what's happening to you rather than having your mind be caught up in the past or the future. And I would like to like leave your audience with this one really reassuring token of hope that like anxiety actually is 100% treatable. I don't know if you have heard that before or not, but like it truly is. And that's why anxiety is different from any other mental illnesses because it's treatable. There are, there are things that we can do to not just manage it, but to like completely make it go away. And it just takes a little bit of practice. That's incredible to hear and so encouraging. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can everyone find you? I highly suggest everyone go follow Jen on Instagram and um, check out her work. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm the anxiety doc on Instagram, separated by periods in between each word. So the dot anxiety dot doc. And then um, my website is www.theanxietydoc.com. I have online courses and workshops. I try to do monthly workshops that focus in on various topics that my audience is is dealing with at the moment or that I'm getting feedback on. Um, And then I have an online course called The Anxiety-Free Method that just teaches people kind of like a step-by-step blueprint how to manage anxiety on their own. So this is really for the person who wants to avoid taking medication. You can, of course, you can do this course if you're on medication as well. But I think a lot of the times we go to the doctor and the first line of action is to be prescribed medication. And for a lot of people, myself including, included, like that's just not satisfying. I want to learn how to deal with this on my own and not just deal with it. Like I want to learn how to get rid of it. And so that's what I, that's what I teach people to do in the anxiety free method, how to like take control of, of this situation of their anxiety and transform it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll see you next time, guys. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to follow, subscribe, or leave a rating. This really helps the show and it helps us bring you more of the conversations that you crave. Bye for now.